podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. Uh, we're two people who studied archaeology together and love history. Um, so what have you been doing craft-wise this week? I have branched out into gardening. Oh. But, um, no branches actually involved. I, I planted my woad at the weekend. Uh, it turns out digging is actually quite tiring. Um, who knew? Hazel, you did archaeology. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I kind of... I haven't excavated in a while. <laughs> is is it the digging properly down rather than scraping back layers that does it? Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I've done my fair share of matticking, but I was a bit useless at that as well, to be honest. But I, I did it. I dug myself a bed for the wood and I planted Um and it should be ready in July. It should be fully grown. So we're gonna see some beautiful blue dyed wool on, really the, on, the, so. on the Twitter bit in the summer. Yeah, I'll do some videos. Um because woad is like when you die with woad it looks grey in the pot and then you pick it out and it turns blue with oxida oxidization. It's like Oh it's, that's very cool. Yeah. That, so is, really that is actual witchcraft. I know. <laughs> it kind of makes you understand why woad is associated with like magic and things. Mm. Yeah, it's very cool. Um so yeah. Hopefully all I all I need to do is um make it not die within the next So that week. it can die. Yes, but constructively. <laughs> Uh, what have you been up to? Um, I have been coping with anxiety by making salted caramel brownies. That is an extremely valid coping mechanism. Um, yeah, like all you all you have to do is you you put the brownie batter in the pan. Mm. You put on just some blobs of salted caramel on top, and you just kind of swirl it through with oh, a God. chopstick and you get these beautiful like feathery patterns of caramel and then when you bake it they all like crisp up and and like melt into the brownies it's it's so good it's oh, so good i can see them i can taste them <laughs> <laughs> why would you do this to me <laughs> when we are no longer on lockdown we'll <laughs> produce some brownies yes <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to being on the receiving end of production. Um, <laughs> on the receiving end of some brownies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds a bit aggressive, doesn't it? I'll just get a trebuchet and just launch them to Sussex. It'll be fine. Mm. Have we talked about this before? I feel like this is a strategy we've done before. Possibly. But on the other hand... I really like siege weaponry. <laughs> that, that is a point you've got there. I cannot yeah. deny that. Um, I, I'll do it for science. So, <laughs> I believe this is another episode that was suggested by a listener. It was, yeah. Um, I'm terrible and I've, I've forgotten who it was. Who was it? <laughs> Um, Andy on Twitter. Yeah, thanks, Andy, because I really like sheep, and now I get to talk about it to the internet. 
I'm very excited to learn all there is to know about heritage sheep breeds. Okay. Uh, well, it turns out there's a lot of breeds of sheep. What? So, <laughs> they're, they're quite a popular animal. So <laughs> I'm not going to tell you about all of the sheep breeds. Um, but I've sort of picked out some of the more interesting ones to mention. Um, so sheep have been domesticated for, for quite a long time, but they weren't used for wool, um, I think, until they thought to have been domesticated um, between 11,000 and 8,000 BC. Is this our friend the Fertile Crescent? It is! It's Mesopotamia! Heck yeah! Yeah, everyone loves the Levant! We can say heck, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Nice. Fine. Probably. So, but at that time, they were kept for their meat and for their milk and their pelts as well. They didn't really begin to be used for wool until the Bronze Age, um, or the Bronze Age in Europe, anyway. Um, I'm going to keep this probably more European, British focused because I don't have a huge amount of knowledge about wool specifically outside of that region. Um, I mean, I feel like if we covered every breed of sheep from yeah. all of the countries, <laughs> this might take a while. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and the ancient breed of sheep was a lot smaller than it is today. And the coat was less big and fluffy um, and probably coarser. But with selective bleed breeding over the centuries, they've got a lot more um, diversified in terms of the breeds and some of them are really specialized for their wool. Um, so originally they probably would, wouldn't have been shorn. They would just like sheep molt their, fur, their wool naturally. Um, yeah, because you can least... pick it off like fences and fields, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and at least the more ancient breeds um, would have done this. Modern breeds do need to be sheared because otherwise their wool doesn't come off. But um... Have you seen Shrek the Sheep? I have! Is that the one that escaped for like six years? Yeah, I will post... I will find something about Shrek the Sheep and I will put it in the show notes so that everyone can enjoy Please. the glory. It will bring joy to your day. It really will. <laughs> <laughs> so um, originally people would have just sort of picked up the wool that was caught on things and on the ground that had fallen off and just kind of gone like, ah, oh, this is warm. We can make a thing from it. And then they did that. Uh, and the rest is history as they say. Um, so one of the breeds of sheep heritage breeds that I kind of found out about as a result of this is the Caracal breed. And these originate from Central Asia and they're probably one of the closest breeds to like an ancient style breed of sheep that exists today. Um, that you can see like carvings on of them in Babylonian temples and their kind of wool has been found in like ancient Persia. So they're, they are like a really old breed of sheep. Um, and they've been imported to Africa and to the USA as well. Um, so they're 
mainly used for uh, meat and for their pelts as well, for the sheepskins. Uh, but their wool is also used. It makes really, really good, strong carpet wool. So I'm guessing that most of the like amazing Persian carpets and stuff are made with this kind of wool. Um, and apparently the craft of felting evolved with this wool. This was like the first wool to be felted. Which well, that's is cool. Interesting. Yeah. I've not done any felting. Have you? No, I... I want to, but the sound that the needles make, the horrible, like, crunching, tearing noise, just, it goes right through me. Oh, man. Is that, like, needle felting? Yeah. Yeah, the stabby one. Yeah. I, is there a non-stabby one? Yeah, there's wet felting, which is literally where you... Oh, like medieval hats. ...on top of each other and get it wet and, like, rub it. Okay, I might be able to do that one. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, less murderous. Mm. Hmm. Do you want to hear about some Icelandic sheep? I absolutely want to hear about some Icelandic sheep. Oh, they're so good. I'm going to find a picture of an Icelandic sheep and I'm going to post it to the Twitter because they're incredible. Um, they're also another very, very ancient breed. In fact, the Icelandic sheep of today is genetically the same as it was 1100 years ago. And that Amazing. is because it is illegal to import sheep into Iceland. Wait, what? <laughs> I love how we keep discovering these really weird niche laws. I know. <laughs> it is illegal to import sheep into Iceland in case they crossbreed with the protected heritage Icelandic sheep and, and deteriorate the breed. Um, yeah, the more you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, so these, and I think it's because these, they are quite a special breed. They're direct descendants of the original Viking sheep that were brought there when Iceland was colonised. So they are literally just the sheep version of Icelandic people. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest, most of the population of Iceland is actually as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> they're extremely hardy. Um, they're kind of, honestly, it sounds like they're kind of feral. Like, they're apparently aggressive towards other kinds of sheep. <laughs> they kind of just, like, like to be so on their own. what you're saying is Icelandic sheep are racist. I mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> but, but it could be inferred I've never seen them around other sheep you know <laughs> far be it from me to slander the good name of, of a sheep <laughs> <laughs> they are they're related they're related um, to the Shetland in that they're both d descended from um um, old kind of Norse varieties of sheep and makes I did talk sense. about Shetlands sorry I said I just said makes sense yeah um and I did talk about Shetland quite a bit a couple of episodes ago so I'm not going to go into that too much here but um the Icelandic sheep are although they're actually mostly used for meat in Iceland um it's one of the biggest things that they export is, is sheep meat or lamb I guess 
but they're really famous for the wool because it is so warm and you know there's really cool Icelandic jumpers like the color work ones um they're they're just like, oh like the ones in the crime dramas is it that kind of thing yeah yeah <laughs> um they're they're so warm because these sheep just have to live in really harsh conditions and they've got this really downy underlayer of wool and then like a coarser more hard wearing outside that's a very long staple like a husky oh is that what huskies have Mm-hmm. they have like the fluffy layer and then the like hair layer Icelandic sheep are the huskies of sheep, confirmed. Nice. They're, they're quite prized among spinners and knitters for the quality of their wool, which is, I mean, it's quite coarse, but for outerwear, it's amazing because it's just so warm. Um, so yeah, that's the Icelandic sheep. And if we take a short little hop across the sea to the Shetland Isles, you get the Shetland sheep. Um, which similarly very old breed thought to originate from the Vikings um, and that is kind of acclimatized to the Shetland Islands and has um, a, a wool that's a lot softer and is really famous for having a long very long staple which is the length of the individual fibers of the wool and so it can be used to make this amazing stuff like Shetland Lace, which we did a whole episode on. Um, yeah, listen to episode two if you, ha if you want to know more about Shetland Lace. Yeah, do that. It's cool. Um, yeah, so that, that's a couple of Northern European breeds. Um, I'm going to go a bit more down into England now um, and talk about the Herdwick, which is really interesting because i think i think i've had that i think i've had herdwick lamb oh i think that's a thing okay yeah there um there's not so many of them around now they've kind of fallen out of fashion a bit because their wool isn't very soft um and I think, I mean, I don't know too much about the economics of sheep raising, <laughs> but I did read a fantastic book by a Herdwick Shepherd in the Lake District called James Rebanks. Um, it's, I think it's called The Shepherd's Year or something like that. Hold on. Oh yeah, it's called The Shepherd's Life. The Shepherd's Life. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really good book about raising sheep in the Lake District uh, in today's economy. Um, and so the Herdwick sheep, um, they're quite an old breed. I'm not sure exactly how old they are, but they're a good few hundred years old. And they live up on the fells in the Lake District. And they get hefted to a particular patch of ground, which means they, like that's their home. They live there. When you say hefted... Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining people like carrying sheep to us to the right field now. <laughs> I like that. I like that image. Please tell me that's what it is. Don't think it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, it kind of just means that they won't they won't wander away. You can literally just take them up there, 
in the spring and leave them there and then come back later and all of your sheep are still there okay so are they the ones that you'd if you go to the lake district you just see a herd of sheep unattended in the middle of nowhere is that what's going on yeah i would assume so yeah um apparently they bring them down in the winter um to to like keep them alive but for most of the year they just they just stay up there doing their thing i like it yeah it's a low maintenance sheep yeah i mean it sounds like quite a nice life just like roaming out on the fells and being a sheep i don't know i envy these sheep yeah that is it's the millennial dream isn't it (laughs) (laughs) oh to be a sheep (laughs) um oh and in fact i i do want to share with you um a quote that i found from well it's more actually the poem that this quote comes from at the moment i'm reading the golden thread uh, by cassia sinclair which is a history of fabric and there's a chapter about the wool trade in England, which was very lucrative and one of the reasons there are so many varieties of sheep. And we should probably do a separate episode on that because there's some wild stuff involving war with the Dutch. Oh gosh, yeah, I mean we probably should. But there's just like so much and so many like knock-on effects from it that mm. you wouldn't like expect. But um, yeah, there's a quote from a poem written by somebody called Winrich of Treves, who in 1090 writes a poem called The Conflict of Sheep and Flax, which is from the perspective of a sheep. Excellent. It's just about different sheep sort of extolling the praises of dyes from different areas. <laughs> it's adorable. I like the idea that a sheep is picky about what is used on its wool. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's talking about madder being used for red dye in, in Britain. Um, and it says, not blood, not sun, not fire, glows as red as you, Britain, ruby in my coat. Oh, very Mr. Sheep. So that was a fun one. Unfortunately, I can't find like a translation of it anywhere because it's written in Latin. Because obviously, that's what sheep speak. Um, well, obviously, because they are God's creatures. <laughs> <laughs> that um, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think Nick studied um, Latin. We should send this poem to them. Yeah, can you get Nick to just walk out into a field and start shouting Latin at some sheep? <laughs> <laughs> and film it and put it on the Patreon. <laughs> Maybe once we're allowed in fields again, that could be quite fun. Yeah, that's what's one to practice. And you know. <laughs> so, what did you do in quarantine? <laughs> anyway, the, what 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 is in this poem that you mentioned? 
Oh, that was just yeah that's the quote from it that I wanted to oh, okay I just, I just liked that there was a medieval poem um from the perspective of sheep it is very good yeah um so anyway another sheep uh the Wensleydale I love the Wensleydale that's the one with the dreadlocks right it is yeah Wensleydale um also known for cheese cheese grommet yes it's it's the cheese that Wallace from Wallace and Gromit mentions a lot which is, it's kind of a slightly creamy, slightly nutty one, which you, you get you get nuttiness a lot with with sheep cheeses. You can get one with cranberry in it, Wensleydale with cranberry. It's like I haven't had that. I've had Wensleydale with apricot in. Ooh, which is a very nice like yeah. for for a pudding, a little dessert yeah. cheese. Okay. Uh, anyway, sidetracked by cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I just love cheese. <laughs> The Wensleydale is quite, quite characteristic. It's um, a, one of the younger breeds, heritage breeds, um, that I'm going to talk about. But uh, when I say that, I mean it's early 19th century. Ugh, what a young whippersnapper. Can I ask, what is the like, cutoff for what is considered a heritage sheep? I don't know. Um, I would assume it's a sheep breed that is from before industrialization. Okay, that that tracks. Like, so this is like right on the cusp of heritage, then. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, and it's they are still they're coming back. They're getting quite popular, mainly for the quality of their wool, which is they're a long wool breed. So I'm also going to find a picture of these because is that why they get dreadlocks because it's just so long. Yeah, it's really long, really lustrous wool. It's almost like shiny. I've spun with it, and it's just absolutely beautiful. It's it's got this luster to it, and almost like a kind of fuzzy halo around it. Um, and when you see the sheep, they, they do kind of look a bit like they have dreadlocks. They've got these really long, beautiful locks of wool that are really kind of um, curly. And they have a bit of an emo fringe going on. Um, oh, they, they really do. They've got this characteristic forelock that's called a topping, apparently. Um, but it just, it looks very emo. It's like the icing. <laughs> Oh, the sheep. Um, yeah, but they um, they did decline. Like a lot of these heritage breeds, they declined in popularity with uh, industrialization, and with that came um, less variety, um, and also wool from the nineteenth century industrial. I guess the second industrial revolution, um, more cotton was kind of being produced than wool in the mills. Um, so wool production kind of took a bit of a back seat and that continued into the 20th century. Um, but then a lot of these are getting more popular again because now we like their variety. Like we want to have different kinds of wool and mm. especially like spinners and crafty people and stuff. Yeah, there's like, been a definite craft resurgence. Yeah. Um, and that's been really good for like yeah, appreciation of the 
heritage breeds of sheep um, and which a lot of them are perfectly adapted to the environment that they're native to so it's really good to have all these different breeds um, because they're often quite involved in the management of the landscape like for example the south down sheep um, which is native to the south downs which is where i'm from and they're adorable they've got these kind of really fluffy teddy bear faces and they're used for managing the downland uh, which chalk downland is actually more diverse in terms of plant plant species per square meter than the amazon rainforest which is like a wild fact <laughs> and the chalk grassland is managed with the sheep grazing um so like if the sheep weren't there then the chalk grassland would kind of gradually get taken over by trees and scrub so yeah there you go cool uh, um so yeah that's like i mean i could go on there's a lot <laughs> and there's definitely more in other parts of the world as well um, well, yeah, which... I mean, you've done your local sheep. There is a, a Lancastrian sheep breed known as the Lonk. What? L-O-N-K. The Lonk. That is a good name. I know <laughs> nothing about them beyond the name and the fact that they're meant to have been bred by monks. The Monk Lonk. But they're called Lonks. <laughs> That's a good name. That reminds me as well. There was another one when I was trying to pick what breeds to talk about. Uh, there's like a Romanian breed of sheep called the Wallachenschaf. Oh, it sounds like a sword. It kind of does. <laughs> and this is Wallachenschaf. Your sword? No, my sheep. <laughs> Pokemon sword and sheep. Anyway, yeah, and un unfortunately, they're endangered. There's only about well, oh, there no. were about two hundred of them left um, around two thousand. So, yeah, I mean, if anyone knows that, please to find out the fate of, of the Wallachian chef. I, I have to know. Or any information about the lonk. <laughs> Points will be given for the most entertaining facts. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, a uh, brief wild and wonderful tour through the many breeds of sheep. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe like, I'll, we'll do some more later on. Those, those were some wonderful sheep facts. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, I feel like when that. this episode goes up, we should maybe tweet some pictures of some heritage sheep. Definitely should. And we should caption them. We should have a caption competition. <laughs> <laughs> what would the prize be? Some woads dyed wool? I mean, it could be. <laughs> we might have to wait a while for it, though. Um... Well, at least three weeks. But I mean, this episode's not going up for about three weeks. The word is fully grown in July. That's a little more than three weeks. Uh, might have to wait. I mean, I could... Wensleydale wool, maybe. Some, some, or something. If 
you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bread and thread. Patreon rewards include instructional videos, recipes, and access to a Discord server where you can discuss crafts and food. I want to talk to you about the Plowman's Lunch. Ah! You heard me mention Plowman's Pickle last episode. We're on the Plowman's Lunch. This Hello. is great. This is great because this is a thing that I've just grown up with as like, this is a Plowman's Lunch. But I have a sneaking suspicion that so, it, it has secrets. So how, how old do you think the Plowman's Lunch is as a concept? Oh. I mean, do you want to explain what a plowman's lunch is first? Um, a plowman's lunch is, well, now a plowman's lunch is you go to a pub and you ask for a plowman's and you get some thick slices of bread, some thick slices of cheese, some pickled eggs or some plowman's pickle, which I will explain in a, not pickled eggs, some pickled onions, please edit that, some pickled onions um, or a plowman's pickle, which I will elaborate on in a moment. And you generally have it with a pint of beer. Preferably ale. Sometimes you get apples? Yes, yeah, sometimes you get mm-hmm. apples or salad, but the, the base plowman's is bread, cheese and pickle. Yeah, Not pickles, fun. pickle. So how old do you think this concept of the Plowman's Lunch is? Okay, I mean, it it sounds like it should be some kind of ancient, you know, like medieval peasant foods, like the Plowman mm. would go out in the morning and, and plow the fields and then sit down for his, like, hearty Plowman's Lunch. Is that true? I kind of want it to be true. It's half true. Okay. So the idea of a plowman having bread, cheese, and beer is mentioned in a satirical poem from 1394-ish called Pierce the Plowman's Creed. Yeah, I've heard of that one, I think. Or is that... Is, is Pierce Plowman, like, some kind of character? That no, they're, they're, they're two that? different things. Okay. They're two different poems in the same tradition. Is oh. Pierce Plowman... And Pierce the Plowman's Creed. Okay, that makes a lot the former, more. I've tried to read, couldn't get into, but it's just about this guy who has like Christian dreams. Um, whereas Pierce the Plowman's Creed, which is the one that mentions the bread, cheese, and beer, is a satirical poem about monks. Sounds great. Um. So, I mean, obviously the idea of eating bread, cheese, and beer, like, everyone knows bread and cheese. It's in every film when someone runs away, they take some bread and some cheese. Bundle. But the the idea of selling this meal as the Plowman's Lunch was created by the Cheese Bureau in collaboration with the Milk Marketing Board to try to increase cheese sales after rationing in the 50s. The what? <laughs> the Cheese Bureau and the Milk Marketing Board. Oh, man. Um, the monthly bulletin of the Brewers' Society 
1956, um, mentioned this mission um, and said that the Cheese Bureau, quote, exists for the admirable purpose of popularising cheese and, as a corollary, the public house lunch of bread, beer, cheese and pickle. This traditional combination was broken by rationing. The Cheese Bureau hopes, by demonstrating the natural affinity of the two parties, to effect a remarriage. <laughs> that is that is poetry. <laughs> I cannot deny the natural affinity of the two parties. The two parties being, I think, the Cheese Bureau and the Brewers Society. Oh, okay. I thought we were talking about bread and cheese. No, it's bread, beer, cheese, and pickle. It's four parties in the meal. <laughs> That's a lot of parties in your meal. <laughs> There's a party in my mouth, and all the pickles are invited. <laughs> um, so the concept of like pickled onions has been a thing pretty much forever, as we mentioned in the jam episode. Um, things, yeah, I guess would have been pretty essential. But what we know as the Plowman's Pickle is much more recent. Um, was created by Branston Pickle in the 30s. That's his name. Um, its ingredients include onions, apple paste, vinegar, sugar, carrot, rutabaga, tomatoes and dates. Okay. And the... I mean, that recipe has at least been pretty much unchanged, apart from swapping out sugar for high fructose corn syrup for the American market. But the Branston pickle in the in the UK is still made with actual sugar. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought, I guess I've never really thought about Branston pickle that much. I never used to like pickle. I mean, it's it's not the brand that I tend to get, because um, Bury Market has. Um, they just have this really nice brand of, of Plowman's Pickle that I can't remember the name of right now because we haven't had any for a while. But Branson's is pretty good, is pretty good to be fair. Yeah, it is. Um, it does go so, yeah, this... I've got to admit that. She could say they have a, a natural affinity. They do. The two parties. <laughs> So but, I mean, this concept of the plowman's lunch is is so ingrained, just what sixty-ish years later that you can actually buy a pl- just a plowman sandwich, which is just a ham, cheese, and pickle sandwich. Because I'm not sure when the ham snuck in, but ham has become like a part of it. Yeah, it seems to be a like a some sometimes you get ham. Sometimes you don't, but mostly mm. you get ham. This this was not in the original vision of the Cheese Bureau or the Milk Marketing Board. I'm just saying. Oh, is it not canon? It's it's not canon. Ham is not canon. Ham only exists in fanfic plowmans. <laughs> It's apocryphal ham. <laughs> I thought it was quite nice. 
So yeah, the the plowman's lunch is a delicious lie, is what I've <laughs> learned. That's so surprising. I like I said, it's just it's a thing. Like if you grow up in the UK, you go to the pub and there's your plowman's lunch, or there's a plowman's. Um, to be fair, like at this point, I think it is valid to call it a thing. It's been a thing for like sixty years. Yeah, but like to know that. But it they was... pretended it was a thing sixty years ago in I'm order to sell cheese. It's an actual conspiracy <laughs> to sell cheese. It's a cheese conspiracy. <laughs> oh. A conspiracy. <laughs> oh no. <clears throat> I feel like my mind's just been blown. <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to suggest an episode or a local larder, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us like Andy did at breadandthread on Twitter. Yeah, and we'll see you next time for some more exciting cheese facts. <laughs>